At Kedby, the Trent River winds north, joining the Humber. The river flows under the delicate two-metre span of the Humber Bridge, a fine arc of modernity in an ancient landscape, and opens up at Grimsby, before merging almost imperceptibly with the sea. Trawlers once landed more fish in Grimsby than anywhere else in the world. An innovative rail dock brought goods from across the globe, but the links to the sea are much older. In the Dark Ages, the rivers and sea formed the borders of the tiny kingdom of Lindsay. In the names of Kidby and Grimsby, the BY suffix tell us Vikings once landed their longships on the riverbanks and flat estuary beaches around here. At Kedby, canals connect the Trent west to the coal mines, steel foundries and factories that powered the Industrial Revolution. In the corner formed by the river and canal, a coal-fired power station was commissioned in 1952. For three decades, Kidby turned coal into power and into climate-changing carbon dioxide. Later, in 1992, new links to the sea, pipelines carrying natural gas, provided a cleaner source of power. A nearby wind farm, which, like the gas plant, is owned by SSE, brought emissions-free electricity from the air. Kedby One, the first gas power plant, was mothballed in the 2010s, and work didn't start on an approved extension, Kedby Two. As demand for power surged and electricity prices rose, the first plant was brought back online. Work on building the second was started. But these were not good enough even working with one of the world's largest onshore wind farms to provide constant power, a new gas-fueled plant was needed. And this would exploit a new connection with the sea, pumping carbon dioxide not into the air, but into the seabed. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Johnny Dowling. In this episode, we've partnered with Fugro to learn how the UK's first thermal power plant with carbon capture will minimise emissions. Scale can alter our perspective. To consumers, the UK national grid, or any electricity grid, looks like a wall socket or a web of power lines and pylons. To engineers at power generators, like SSE project engineer Katie Burke, it's something entirely different. The way that the grid works is it relies on the inertia of the, the rotating equipment to support the, the grid efficiency and support the movement of the power around the grid. Thermal power plants, including coal, biomass and nuclear, as well as gas, are designed to keep heavy masses spinning. And these move electricity through the grid. As demands on the grid rise, or supply from renewable sources like wind or solar drops, new weights are set spinning. Like heavyweight ballet dancers, they must join their troupe in perfect synchronization, and they must be able to do so quickly. There are not enough renewables there to support the demand from the system. So, you know, on a cold, still day when everybody wants the lights on, 
where does that energy come from if it's not coming from renewables? So you always need what we call flexible dispatchable power generation to back up the system, to keep the lights on and provide that security of supply. Electricity generators are paid a subsidy by the UK government to ensure they can spin up generating capacity whenever needed. We have a registered capacity and we have a commitment that if there is a, a grid stress event, we have to start up within a certain amount of time, bring that power to the grid and help mitigate this, this stress event. You have to perform a test to, to prove your, your output and then that's, that's, that's what the, the, the subsidy is based on. One of the key ways generating companies have improved the efficiency of the system is with combined cycle gas turbines or CCGT plants. These make use of the remaining heat from a gas turbine's exhaust to produce more power. This both reduces the cost of power and its overall environmental impact. More power is generated from the same amount of fossil fuels. As they are able to come online quickly, they remain a key component, along with renewables, in a cost-effective, reliable and sustainable energy grid. So, for example, you could have one of your, you could have a few thermal power stations on outage and one of your nuclear power stations trips and all of a sudden you've lost a huge amount of power off the grid and you need these flexible plants in, in whatever guise, I suppose. It's not just CCGTs, there are other technologies available, but yeah, to come on and, and get that power on the, the bars as quickly as possible. These CCGT plants, like the renewed and under construction Kedby 2, support the grid and reduce overall carbon emissions. But they still have an impact on the climate. As the UK government and generating companies aim for net zero, a new approach is needed. Supplying enough power to meet the UK's needs 24 hours a day and 365 days a year will still require thermal power plants. As we move into the new green economy, the next step will be to remove these plants' harmful emissions. There's a, a range of, of technologies that we can use. And, and the key is, I suppose, is, is to, to decarbonising that, that part of the, uh, the sector as, as quickly as we can, because they, they are needed. Um, and investment in the grid is such that, or in the electricity grid is such that you couldn't change your approach. You can't change that overnight. I mean, it's a, a huge undertaking. At Kedby 3, carbon will be removed from the plant's flue gases and pumped out to disused oil and gas wells in the North Sea. This project is much larger than it needs to be for Kedby alone. The East Coast cluster will store carbon from a range of power and industrial emitters, as Burke's colleague Mark Beerley explains. The East Coast cluster consists of the uh, Teesside, so a number of rock projects around the Teesside area, and then a number of emitter projects running across the North Bank and the South Bank of the Humber, all of which will, will transport their carbon out into the North Sea for storage. Capturing the carbon from Kidby-3's flue gases requires a different set of engineering and construction approaches to those used at other power plants. The carbon capture plant is essentially a chemical plant it uses a post-combustion capture technology uh, using an amine. So effectively, the amine is used to, to strip the carbon from the flue gas in the first part of the process. And the second part of the process then strips the carbon dioxide from the amine 
and so the amine continues to recirculate and the, the captured carbon is then compressed and treated before it's injected into the pipeline. That poses new challenges to Burke and the team planning the construction of KEDB3. Alongside SSE's engineers, Burke also worked with Siemens Energy, who will supply components, Acker Solutions and Altrad Babcock. The CCS plant has, I think it's the size of the equipment. Um, so I mean, the envelope that we're looking at for the, the absorber, for example, we're looking at something up to, I think we're consented for about 90 metres. So we've got some really, really tall pieces of equipment. We've also got some particularly wide vessels as well. So there aren't actually very many big buildings, but there are some big sort of components. So absorber and desorber towers are like big vessels. And then a lot of the rest of it is sort of interconnecting pipe work. Um, there are some sort of buildings associated with compression but a lot of it is interconnecting pipework and, and sort of valves, instruments, etc., to combine all the big elements of plant together. At the moment, we're looking at a partial assembly approach. So we, we are utilising the, the wharf that we have at site. So we've that's sort of included within our, our envelope within the, the planning consent. So we'll be looking to, to bring uh, equipment into site in as large a sections as we can. And on a site like Kidby, which has been used for power generation for 70 years, the ground on which this work will take place poses its own challenges. I think the key, the key challenge with that site is, is the history of the site, the, the Kidby site. So there was a, a coal power station on the site and that was decommissioned in the 1980s. And I think the, 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 process of decommissioning and removing the material from site was not particularly rigorous I would say so there's there's a lot of um, debris in the ground a lot of old foundations uh, a lot of buried contaminants the site's characterized by deeper history still much of the land around Kedby is reclaimed it was here in the early 17th century that Dutch engineer Cornelius Vermoyden brought to England techniques of land reclamation pioneered in his homeland. And the geology of the Ice Age had its own impact on the ground, as Fugro's technical lead Nick Armstrong explains. This site we now know to be the former site of Lake Cumber, which is a huge glacial lake that extended from North Allerton in the north all the way down to Stevenage in the south. Um, and the power station's site is, is, sits on that. Now, that's not a particular issue, but if you understand the ground model, if you understand the previous um, the glacial environment of a site, you can assess, make a better assessment of, of geohazards and any risks that they may cause to the development. Thorough initial desk study, relying on records from the site and the latest academic studies, guides the process of ground investigations. The standard approach in the UK is to drill boreholes around the site and then use an approach called the cable percussion technique to take samples and carry out in-situ tests at specific points. But preparing boreholes carries its own risks, as Armstrong saw early in his career. When I visited my first site 45 years ago with my boss, and he said, go and meet the driller, I said, how do you recognise him? 
and he said he doesn't have his left thumb. Minimising the need to drill boreholes improves safety on site, and using a technique called cone penetration testing also delivers more useful data, which can be used alongside that derived from borehole tests. It's carried out from a large 18-tonne six-wheeled truck, and basically you have an instrumented cone, so a cone which has load cells in it, and as you push the cone through the soil sequence, it measures the load on the cone and the friction developed on its side. The cone is pressed into the ground by inserting rods one at a time, using hydraulic rams on the truck. This means the operators don't have to deal with the risks associated with drilling. And the continuous nature of testing means that a more detailed picture of conditions can be drawn. Boreholes are still needed, however. As well as being a well-understood and accepted approach, boreholes can be used later to take samples from the ground, which is not possible with cone penetration testing. No one technique will give you all the information that you need to do to characterize your site. So you need a blend of different techniques and the skill of the specialist subcontractor or specialist contractor such as Fugro is to advise the client which tech, which tests to use, which techniques to use, um, and, and, you, and, and with all that information, develop the sensible geotechnical ground model. That, that's the skill of site investigation. Fugro worked with the design team on the project for a number of months in 2022. Rather than merely delivering a ground investigation report and moving on, they engaged in a collaborative process, refining and adding details as they went, and using the results of one set of tests to decide what would be needed next. I've been in the industry a long time and never have I worked on a site where there has been such collaboration between the client, the design team, the project team overall, for the benefit of the project. It's been a real joy to work on it. And the nice thing about Fugro is we have this huge portfolio of services, a huge portfolio of in-situ tests and surface tests that we can bring to site without needing to go to external providers. So if there is a need to do the test, we can just mobilize the equipment to, to do it. When work is complete on KEDB 3 towards the end of this decade, the East Coast cluster should be ready to receive its captured carbon. As we move through the energy transition, there will be a need for more sites like this around the world. And these will all need new techniques of ground investigation in order to assess their capacity and maintain efficient operations. Following the Humber out of the estuary, the North Sea looks wide and empty. In the fossil fuel era, the focus here was on just one type of use of the seabed. Some of these exhausted wells will be used for carbon storage but the carbon storage sector will be competing with others for space at sea. This is Rob Hawkins. Rob is a commercial manager at Fugro and has worked on the development of techniques to monitor carbon storage. With the development of, of offshore wind farms and floating in wind farms, there's an overlap between where these carbon storage areas are and where the wind farms are. 
the seabed is becoming a very challenging place because a lot of people want access to it. Fishing, wind farms, carbon capture. While carbon storage may often use existing pipeline infrastructure, offshore rigs and reservoirs, it is nowhere near as simple as reversing the flow of gas through the network. CO2 is, um, is a, is a, it has a totally different chemistry. The owners of the wells where the carbon will be stored have a good understanding of the reservoirs themselves. But with a new technique like this, and a currently uncertain set of regulations, new approaches to monitoring will be needed. One area where there will be a need for checks is on the overburden. Overburden is the selection between the reservoir and the seabed. And obviously there are some fractures and, and, and different uh, types of uh, geological uh, features in there that we, we, you have to monitor. Obviously the uh, integrity of these reservoirs is well known. But when it comes to saline aquifers, there may be areas that you need to monitor just to make sure there is absolutely no emissions through seabed from these reservoirs. The mixed uses of the North Sea poses challenges here. One way of monitoring the seabed is through the use of seismic streamers. These are long cables towed by a vessel which will carry multiple hydrophones. For large 3D seismic to get to reservoir level, you need to have long streamers and you don't want to have your streamers tied around wind turbines. This will be resolved in part by different industries working around each other's uses of the seabed. Governments may also be able to smooth these interactions, but it will also require the adoption of new monitoring techniques. You need to uh, use uh, high-resolution geophysics to determine where these, these uh, fractures are, where they come to surface. So that gives you an idea of potential leakage pathways. The other one is that obviously detecting CO2 per se may be quite difficult, but you can do bubble watches from using seismic data. But the other way is to look at the geochemistry within the sediments and also in the in, in the water chemistry around it and seeing if there's if the, as I indicate that uh, that when there is a CO2 emission at seabed, the, the pH of the water generally drops as a change, which you through different other with other sensors you can then obviously monitor that and pick that up. So not necessarily picking up CO2 directly, but there's other indicators that you can obviously pick up and, and give an indication of what's going on. This monitoring will require a mix of in-depth surveys and of ongoing monitoring. With surveys you'll do probably once every three years with uh, with uh, high resolution surveys or uh, that's uh, geophysical surveys but when it comes to monitoring um, geochemical monitor or monitoring the, the chemistry in the water column you would have permanent sensors on there tied back to installation, so you're actually monitoring it all the time. Carbon capture will play a vital role in greening the economy. One day, truly green hydrogen, along with renewable and nuclear energy, may allow us to eliminate most carbon emissions from the power sector. By capturing carbon, industry and power generation will be able to meet climate goals without requiring entirely new ways of working. Some of the carbon dioxide captured from these processes will be cleaned and used in other applications. Carbon dioxide has a range of uses, including fizzy drinks and in types of food packaging. But most of that will need to be stored securely in the seabed, 
This will require new approaches to performing ground investigations in a crowded marine environment and to monitor conditions around reservoirs. The development of these techniques is now becoming a pressing and exciting challenge. The market is, in, is actually in a growth area at the moment and things are actually happening in it rather than all a lot of talk about things that might happen in the future. It's actually yeah. happening. Anything new will be within that sort of low carbon space. So I think the anything new that we're developing will have either CO2 abatement or it will be in the hydrogen technology area. It's very, very different to, to something that we've done before, but yeah, something that we're really proud to be doing and I, I certainly personally am proud to be a part of. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was hosted by me, Johnny Dowling, and Alex Conacher. Written and produced by Will North. Editing and series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And our own hidden reserve of capacity is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, Fugro. And thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn.